Hello and welcome to the Cigar Cast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Crown Cigars and Ales here in beautiful Brentwood, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Edmond, and sitting across from me is the man who shares my hairbrush, Mr. Shane Reeves. Thank you. Cowboy philosopher. That's my new, I'm aspiring in life to someday someone call me a cowboy philosopher. Well, so I've been on a little bit of a um, of a James Bond kick lately because I just learned that all of them are on Amazon Prime included with your Prime subscription. So I've watched all of them again. And I was watching uh, Live and Let Die last night, which is one of my least favorites. But there was a, he introduces Coral as the man who shares my hairbrush. And I thought, that's just a great expression from someone you have just ultimate trust and kind of someone you would call a brother, the man who shares my hairbrush. So I, I was looking forward to getting to use that. But um, um, I am honored. <laughs> and all, but I still, I'm striving someday for cowboy philosopher. We'll, we'll get you there. Okay. <laughs> and all, it's one of those things, every little boy wanted to be something. I always wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to be a fire truck. So, <laughs> fire truck. I'd say Shane's ahead. <laughs> so, the voice you're hearing, our guest tonight, coming back, author, lawyer, good guy, friend of cigar lovers everywhere, just Jay Drescher is sitting here with us. And I'd like to say, I've had, I appreciate everybody, I've had more positive reviews over the last show you did with us than any shows we've had. In fact, the um, everything that I've seen in, from our statistics show that yours, the episode you were on with us the first time is the most popular episode of our show. So we, it's hopefully having you back will be lightning in a bottle. So <laughs> I feel the pressure. Well, somebody, but people come up to me and they say, oh, yeah, listen to the one with the pirate guy. <laughs> <laughs> so don't let it go to your head too far. Well, every, everybody loves pirates. Not everybody loves me, but everybody loves pirates. So first thing we got to do is fire up a cigar. So what are you smoking tonight, Trey? I'll let you kick it off. So I, I really appreciate the phone call that you sent my way before we started the show um, to let me know that you were not going to smoke this cigar if I wanted to. And it is the new Crown Heads Four Kicks Maduro. Of course, anything that's Crown Heads, you know that it's going to be something that I'm looking forward to. Austin just got these in the shop this week, so I haven't had a chance. This is going to be my first uh, my first one. This is this is actually unlike a lot of the stuff that I like from them. This is not made in the My Father factory. This is actually uh, blended by E.P. Carrillo. It is a Connecticut Habano wrapper over Nicaraguan binder and filler. Um, the size I'm smoking tonight is the 54 by 6 by 54. Um, they give them these weird names. It's not even, it's a Toro. Let's just call it a Toro. They call it the Sublime. Um, but it's uh, it's a cigar that, that I'm not a huge fan of just the regular four kicks. It just doesn't do enough for me. It's a little too light. But I'm re- I've, ever since they announced the four kicks Maduro, I've been really looking forward to giving this a try. Well, they introduced this back at the trade show, and it's taken them this long to ship it. I will say a box of Yellow Rosa Texas followed me home last night. Oh, did they really? So I get to keep them. And all, he has those here in the humidor now. And everybody started getting those here locally. I've seen a lot of a lot of Yellow Rosa Texas popping up on my Facebook feed. I love it. So much so, I actually listened to the song today. Have you ever listened to the Yellow Rosa Texas song? It's not nearly as good as the Tennessee Waltz. That is true. 
But I listened to it in a country version, and I listened to it almost in a battle hymn version. I could just see guys standing at the Alamo singing this arm in arm. <laughs> so it was really interesting to, to kind of really get the full culture out of it. But tonight, I'm going to be smoking something way off script. I'm out there tonight. I'm going to be smoking the new Drew Estate Java Red. As long as you're not making me smoke it. (laughs) I'm taking one for the team. And so I like the Drew Estate Java. It's a chocolate-infused cigar. It's really got a lot of flavored cigar taste. This one is cherry. I'm not making any promises that I'm going to make it to the end of this cigar tonight. (laughs) But I am going to fire it up. I am going to try it. Thus is my commitment to the cigar cast that I will be smoking that. Our guest is smoking an unidentified cigar. Actually, Jay, you said something that I really loved when we asked you what you were smoking, which is, I don't know, someone said it was a good cigar, so I smoked it. (laughs) I'm not at your level on cigars, although uh, I turned 60 uh, a couple weeks ago, and I decided if I was going to, pardon me, if I was going to smoke anything between here and being on the other side of the grass, it would probably be better if it was cigars, so... I'm trying to make the transition to becoming a, a more intelligent consumer of cigar products. So I'll start paying attention from this point on. I, I can suggest a podcast for that. <laughs> I'm sure. Might help you out with, with, that, with attaining that knowledge. So this one, this Java Red, it is a 5x42. It is a box press. And it's Nicaraguan binder and filler. It's a Corojo wrapper, which is a little unusual for me, and it's the darkest Corojo wrapper I've ever seen. I thought it was a Maduro wrapper till I actually looked it up. Yeah, that is relatively... I wonder if that has something to do with the infusion that made it so dark. I don't know. The, co- the cold draw is good. The cold draw has... Um, you can really taste that cherry. I think I'll taste the cherry more before I light it than I will while it's lit. Though when Austin seen I was going to smoke it on the show, he said they taste awful. <laughs> I said, but Absolutely. as any good store owner, he said that after he sold it to me. There you go. That's the perfect <laughs> way to do that. Not like he headed me off at the pass. So, but, Jay, so Jay, last time you were on, um, you know, we had you talk about your book quite a bit. And at the time, I hadn't had the, t- the opportunity to read it yet. Um, that has since changed. And I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed reading that book. Uh, it's it's so outside of my wheelhouse. I'm I'm a nonfiction guy mostly, and um, don't really get into uh, fiction or much less pirate fiction. But I was, I think I read it in two and a half days, and was staying finding myself staying up till one a.m. just laying in bed reading it. I could not put it down. Well, that as you might as you might guess uh, for a. Uh first-time author, that's music to my ears. Um, I've had quite a number of people that are friends or acquaintances that have read the book, and they say this is, essentially what they say is, either I don't read, which I hate to hear that, because reading to me is like... It's fundamental. Fishing, running, biking, hiking, photography, watercolors, you could fill in the blank, tinkering with automobiles. It's... Uh, it's one of life's great joys is to get immersed in a book. If you're if you're just reading to to gain information, 
that's too much like work. I, I know a lot of people that went to high that I went to high school with that said, "Hey, I got my diploma. I don't have to read another book again." And that's that's a common phenomenon for people that don't go on to college, and even in college, you know, you you're you have to read what they give you to read to get your degree. So we learn to associate reading oftentimes as young people with work. I've often said that if I was a grade school or junior high teacher and I was teaching math, which that's, that's quite a stretch right there. <laughs> if I saw a kid with a book on his or her lap, I would never stop them and say, you need to put that book away and pay attention because reading is so important to a person's development and to their opening their mind and going into different worlds. It doesn't matter if it's science fiction, if it's fantasy. You know, uh, the biggest selling books of all time are the Lord of the Rings books. Mm -hmm. um, you don't read that to learn about fairies and goblins, but it's about good and evil. I've not read them, but they're, they're, they, they cover every age group, every generation, because it's the reason that the Harry Potter novels were so successful. They were so well-written, they appealed to kids, but adults that read them said they were well-written and enjoyed them. Because when you're in a movie, uh, in a dark theater, you're in the film, you escape from all the troubles and travails of the world, and we, when you get engrossed in a good story and a good book, if it's well-written, it doesn't matter what it's about. So back to my point, a lot of people said two things. Number one, when somebody knows you and you write a book, the bar is really low. Oh, my friend wrote a book. I'll, I'll give it a try. Hopefully I can finish it. I'll tell them it was good even if it isn't. But then if they like it, they're surprised because they think that, that only other people can do that. So when people say, I was surprised, I kind of get what that means. You know, if a friend of yours writes a book, you think, ah, uh, it, it's not going to be any good. But it's not something that most people would search out in a bookstore is a, is a historical fiction about pirates. It just gave me an opportunity to see if I could write a book. And, I, and one of the things that I think we're going to talk about is I have gotten good reports and reviews from people, not just people I know, but others as well. Um, I enjoyed the process of writing so much, I want to do it again. So I'm, I'm doing all the research and actually starting the writing process of trying to do it again. And now I've set the bar so high, it's become very <laughs> difficult because um, I don't want to disappoint people, myself included. I want to write. It's going to take longer. Uh, but I, now I have the confidence I know I can do it. And, and we definitely want to talk to you about that, the story and kind of how you found the new characters that you're going to be, you know, kind of taking us along the journey with. Uh, but I'm curious, as someone who, you know, reading, you know, takes you somewhere. And I'm that way. Uh, I know you are. I'm curious if writing the story was the same journey for you. If you got the same, it may be a different type of um, uh, feeling from it, but if it was that same type of escapism. I have met a lot of authors in, in different venues over the years, and you'll often hear an author describing kind of being in the zone, for lack of a better description. So I can remember times when I would go to the coffee shop or go sit down and write for an hour or two, and things would occur to me that it's almost like magic. 
when you're reading a book, you're going to another place in time. When you're writing a book, you're doing the same thing, only you're the maestro. You get to guide where it goes, but almost the story, it's hard, it's not, it shouldn't be hard to describe if I think of myself as a writer, but it's like going on a trip. You plan your itinerary and you want to go see the Grand Canyon. There are certain things that you have an expectation of, but one of the most memorable things may be that cowboy that you meet in Arizona at a truck stop, and you end up having a long conversation. You know, the guy fought in World War II, then he, then he was called back to fight in Korea, and then he made all this money, but he didn't like living in the rat race, so now he's a cowboy in New Mexico or Arizona. And that's the unexpected benefit of going on trips, is meeting the people, seeing the things that you didn't expect. So when you're writing and, you, and ideas start kind of coming at you like bugs on the windshield, they just appear to come out of nowhere, but it's because you're in that zone. So whether it's writing a conversation or uh, a, a fight sequence or uh, the part where the main character goes to the brothel, you're in that context and things start occurring to you as this is, this is what it would be like. And it gives you free reign to use your imagination as you see fit. It's really, it's really fun. And as I've also said, writing a book for me was a great escape. It was great fun. I would do nothing but that if I had the wherewithal and the means to do so. But trying to get people to buy the book and read it is work. You know, <laughs> self-promoting, marketing, and I've heard authors say that. In fact, some of the most well-known authors in the United States, they hate it. They just hate it. They hate going to bookstores. They hate talking about their work. But it's part of, it's part of being an author. Um, there are some people that don't have to market their books. Uh, who wrote the Harry Potter novels? What's her name? J.K. Rowling. Yeah, she doesn't have to go to bookstores and sign books to sell books. You know, Stephen they sell King, John Grisham, yes. those kinds of... Sometimes they do but they don't really like to do it. And uh, I get that now because it's, uh, you, just want, you just want everybody to read it and tell you whether they liked it or not, but it doesn't work that way. I've learned too from having my book on, it's an e-book and a print book on Amazon. There are millions and millions. There, I don't know if it's eight million or 10 million, but there's that many books on Amazon right now. Wow. So there's a lot of books out there. And when somebody, it's not the money, because a couple weeks ago, you could have bought my book. I, I ran a week-long special for 99 cents. That was to get more readers. Normally, it's $3.99. That's, that's the price of a cup of coffee or half a cigar. It's the time that people invest in sitting down and reading your book, whether it takes them two and a half days or two and a half weeks. So that I take that as a compliment that they're able to start the book and finish it. Um, that's rewarding as well. But to, to try to get people that I don't know and try to market the book... That's why I like this opportunity, because if I can reach one person or three people that will read my book, then the notion is if I write another book, then maybe I've developed a person that might be more inclined to say, hey, I'm going to take a, a look at Jay's second book. So that's kind of how that works. Well, it's pretty amazing. And it was in, Jay and I had a real, a real moment in here in the cigar shop one night. After I finished reading your book, do you remember the first question I asked you? Afterwards, I remember our discussion. I don't remember the first thing you asked me. I asked if you feel trapped by your career. <laughs> because one of the common themes of the book was that feeling of being trapped 
and he was very, very good at being a navigator. And that's actually kind of what built the prison. And sometimes I feel that in my career. I'm very, you know, I'm bragging. I'm very good at drawing houses. That's one of those things in life that I'm gifted with. And some kind of, it's kind of like I've built my own um, prison that now I have to go draw houses every day. Well, one of, one of my favorite things to do in coming in here, there's a guy that was on the South African rugby team who's a customer. There's a lot of veterans that come in here. There's people that have, I've met from foreign countries. I, I think that one of the great joys in life, other than reading, is to be able to travel. But we all, most of us, I would say, have to make a living. You have to do something to put food on the table and provide shelter and transportation. And, you know, not everybody is able to love what they do and do what they love. I, I like being a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for 35 years. I'm not giving up my day job. I don't feel trapped. Actually, I felt, I felt a certain amount of freedom. And in in once I started the project, I would just go to the... I would go to the coffee shop, take my laptop. Sometimes I'd write for an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, maybe two. Depend. It, it was a weekend. There was a period where I was close to finishing the first draft where I asked my wife if I could drive down to Pensacola because I was getting a lot of momentum. So I went down there for three or four days and kind of finished the first draft. Um, I don't think I could sit in a room or a coffee shop and, and write for six or eight hours a day either. So, as we have talked about, Shane, and Trey, you and I have probably talked about this to a lesser degree, um, we're not one-dimensional. Uh, if you design homes, if you practice law, if you repair cars, it doesn't mean that that's all you're capable of doing, nor does it mean that that's all you should do, because you would feel trapped if that's all you could do. You've got to be able to... One of the things that I've learned about people that live a long life is they have a hobby. Um, something that they like to do, not because they get paid for it, but just because they enjoy it. Whether it's exercise or training for triathlons, sport fishing. I really have a tremendous, well, there's a, there's a world-class portrait painter from Russia that comes in here all the time. And he's not just talented. He's, he's, he paints the popes and Putin and the Bushes and the royal family in Britain. He travels the world but I, I'm amazed at his skill set. He's a true maestro. And we've talked about his training, and he started at a very, very young age. Um, but I'm sure that there's things he likes to do besides paint. It's, you, he's got to. That's probably why he comes in here, so he can hang out. But back to, back to travel, if, uh, I would love to go to all the places that Harry Glasby went. But if I can't, I can at least create a world, and he, he goes there, and he gets to see and do all this exciting stuff. And that's why we read, because if you can't afford to go to Rome, or if you can't afford to go to the Colosseum, you can visit it in a book. So right. there you go. Well, there was a lot of interesting things in the book. Like I said, I enjoyed it. I read it on my cruise, had a lot of fun, and I kind of was in the Caribbean while it was going on, so that just added to the whole setting of, get, of getting to just really get in there and enjoy it. Uh, Valentine Ashplant, still my favorite character in the book, but I think he would win the award overall. Well, he, I, I told you, Shane, when we talked about it at, right after you came back from your trip, again, kind of like things occurring to you as you're going, as you're writing the book, I became, I became really enamored with this character of Valentine Ashplant. 
he he was a tough guy. He was a he could do mean things, but he didn't enjoy it. In fact, that's one of the reasons why that made him more of a complex character. And he just he just for some reason I became very very fond of him as as a character. And he's a real person. He really lived. I mean, for one thing, it's one of the coolest names ever. You know, <laughs> Valentine Ashplant. He's a real person, and we talked about this too. Harry Glasby was a real person. Of course, Bartholomew Roberts was a very famous or infamous pirate captain. He's not as famous as some of the more caricatured pirates like Blackbeard and, um, oh gosh, Captain Kidd. There's a lot of pirates that are, that are famous because of books and, and, and movies, and we don't need to get into the Disney world of pirates because that's a, actually a challenge that I faced was not making the book like a Disney movie. I didn't, that, that was something I tried to avoid because I wanted to make it real. And it's based on real events and real people. And because I like history so much, that was one of the things that, that, that made this more exciting for me personally. And I think, that's, I think that speaks volumes to the fact that you know, your follow-up stays in that historical realm, but kind of takes a complete, complete sidestep from you know, going from pirates to the Revolutionary War. And we're going to talk a little bit more about um, Prescott's fortune when we return. But for right now, I think it's time we're going to step away and take a little bit, little bit of a break. And we'll be right back with more after this. Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane Reeves. Okay, here's what I got to say about the Java Red. Finally, the great taste of cough syrup put into a cigar. (laughs) (laughs) And all this tastes like cherry NyQuil. I mean, really, that's that's what it tastes like as I'm smoking it. It's not terrible. I'm going to finish it, but it's... That does not sound like a good review. I will not be rushing to pick up another Java Red in the near future. Tell me about the Four Kicks Maduro. So I'm actually kind of excited. You know, one of the things I love about when we have a guest on the show is the fact that I get to sit back and listen, and it's not, and I'm not, you know, talking the whole time. I've actually smoked well over halfway through this cigar, and I'm really enjoying it. It's not as peppery as some of their collaborations with the My Father cigars. It's just got that nice sort of oaky, woody, earthy flavor to it. It's a, it's a perfect example of what a Maduro cigar is. To me, it's got a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of strength, a little bit of spice, but not much at all. But it's just a good, well-rounded, earthy, tobacco-flavored cigar. It's amazing how much since the podcast, Crown Heads products have been growing on me. Um, I was not a Crown... If you listen to the first couple episodes of the podcast, you'll see I'm not a Crown Heads fan. But it seems like you're starting to infuse your love of crown heads on me. It, then, then my work has complete. Your work here is done. That's right. Our guest tonight is Jay Drescher, the pirate guy. He's <laughs> <laughs> been sitting here. He's been telling us we talked about Glasby's fortune. And before we get into talking about your next book, I do have a little bit of cigar news I want to hit. This is something I'm very excited about. So they announced today, which is earlier than you'll be hearing this podcast, Crown Heads and Altadiz USA are collaborating for a Monte Cristo Ciudad de Musica. 
Do you know what Ciudad de Musica <laughs> Music, translates? Music City. Nashville. Music City. It's based on Nashville. It's a Nashville cigar. Crown Heads is a Nashville company. This cigar, in it's Ecuadorian Habano wrapper. It's over Nicaraguan binder and fillers. So I'm interested to see how that's, that's going to work. It's a good recipe. Uh, the fact that you said it's Monte Cristo is yes. the, the flagship it's under. Uh, it's, I'm going to be interested to see how if those are two great tastes that taste great together. You know, I, the Monte Cristo is so different from everything Crown Heads does. You know, they're just so wildly different cigars. I'll be interested to see how that collaboration, if it brings out the best in both. Well, and it's also interesting, the Ciudad de Musico is going to have a size that you can only be, get at Casa de Monte Cristo, which is the Pyramid, which oh, goes back to the we Pyramid go. we talked about last week Yeah, that I smoked. So I'm really excited about this cigar. They say it's going to be out shortly, which could mean, you know, shortly is a length of time between five minutes and five days and five years. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Well, in, in the cigar world, that usually means middle of spring next year. Yeah, probably be an early release, but I can't wait to get one and give it a shot. I'm very excited about that cigar. It sounds interesting enough that it just might work. We're gonna we're gonna find out. So, coming back to talking to our guest, and I've got to say, just before we get back into this, one of one of the things that we always do with Jay, we did it last time you were on the show, is we spend so much time in the break talking that that I it's stuff that I wish we would leave the the recorder going for because uh, we were talking about. Your new book, Prescott's Fortune, kind of takes place and has some characters based on the Revolutionary War, and and how some of the some of the characters from Glasby's Fortune could have potentially known each other or met along the way. And I just think it's fascinating that you know the research that you put into this leads you down those those rabbit holes, for lack of a better term. You remind me of something. Um, my wife is a private investigator, but before she was. Uh, she was a reporter and in a, at a local TV channel in Quincy, Illinois, where we both grew up. And she said that almost invariably her soundbite would come from when the interview was over and she'd say, is there anything else you'd like to say? Because when people know they're being asked questions, they know the answer they're supposed to give and they're kind of on guard or they're on. But when they're not being recorded or they think that it's done, that's when they tell you what matters or what's really bothering them or what sticks with you as a reporter. It's kind of just human nature. Doctors have a, uh, they call it doorknob questions. Um, it's the same kind of principle. When, when, when the, the appointment's over and the, the doctor's on his way out, that's, oh, one more thing. And that's when, you know, you find out you have cancer or whatever. Well, um, we have to be careful because there are there are some plot twists and turns in my first book that uh, I, I personally I don't I don't mind spoilers, but when a when a movie or a book has a real twist at the end, I love that, and there is a real twist at the end of my first book. Um, but the themes of stories are are usually love and hate, conflict, good and evil. One of the themes in Glasby's Fortune is about power. Uh, The the characters talk about it. Glasby challenges Roberts, when when will you have enough? Why why do you keep doing this? It's so risky, it's so dangerous. What's the allure? I don't get it. And uh, that's the way that people would really behave because Glasby refuses to become a pirate. 
Well, the same themes arise in the American Revolution. It's all about power. The American Revolution is all about power. And when we, when we grow up in America, yes, we know about Paul Revere, we know about the Boston Tea Party, we might know a little bit about the Boston Massacre, we probably don't know much about it. One of the things that people may be shocked to learn is, George, because I thought this was true, George Washington did not have wooden teeth. <laughs> he had false teeth, but they weren't made out of wood. At one point, he buys teeth from slaves. He buys nine teeth from healthy slaves for 13 shillings wow. to use to make a set of false teeth. When, this is something I don't care who listens to this cigar cast. If you know this, send me an email and I'll send you a box of cigars. When George Washington was inaugurated as president, he had one tooth in his head. And they used that one tooth to anchor his set of false teeth because it was dental work was so primitive. One of the, this is going to sound weird, one of the reasons I've come to admire George Washington so much, the guy had to be miserable every day. He did not like being around um, strangers. He didn't like public speaking because he had a mouthful of false teeth and they'd fall out. There wasn't anything to hold him in. He was in pain. He was in discomfort. When you get something stuck in your teeth, it'll drive you crazy. George Washington lived with that all of his adult life. I don't know how he ate. Mm. I don't know how he drank. But now, lest you think that he was uh, some kind of a sadist when it came to his teeth, I should add the footnote that this business about buying teeth from healthy people that needed money, that was a fairly common practice. In fact, this is this will show you about my love of the the minutia of history. So many men died in the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 in Belgium between the French and the English and the Germans that the peasants went out and pulled their teeth. The reason is is because they sold the teeth of the dead to make false teeth. They used real teeth to make dentures. Wow. They were called Waterloo teeth. For years, people would buy Waterloo teeth because the men that were killed in the battle were young and they had healthy teeth. You know, we're lucky to live when we do because you can go to a good dentist, you don't have to worry about that sort of thing. Back to my point about the revolution. The Americans, to this day, don't like to pay taxes. It goes back to 1770, 1773, 1775. The reason they didn't like to pay taxes was because they didn't have any representatives in the government. America was a series of 13 colonies, and they were all very different. Massachusetts was really where the American Revolution was ignited. And they did not like paying taxes to the British because they didn't have anybody in Parliament to represent them. The other thing that I've learned is for everything that the Americans did, the British would up them. They would take away their rights. They were taking away the right to jury trials. They were taking away the right to public meetings. They closed the port in Boston. They were, using a, they were using a velvet fist on the Americans, and the Americans were rebelling against it, as anyone would. And one of the things I was talking to Austin's mom before we started, as much as I read and as much as I think I know about history, I didn't realize that Lexington and Concord and the Battle of Bunker Hill, which was one of the bloodiest battles of the war, all happened before July 4th, 1776. 
the Americans were nervous, as well they should have been, about declaring independence. What they were trying to achieve was reconciliation. They wanted some accommodation. They didn't want to go to war because it would be like um, it'd be like me going into the ring with a championship heavyweight boxer. The chances of me coming out alive are slim to none. There's no way I'm going to beat that guy. So when the Americans went to war against Britain, they had the most powerful army, the most powerful navy. They had an unlimited amount of money. They had an unlimited amount of men. And the Americans had nothing. They didn't even have a government. It's really quite, quite a story. So I was saying during the break that eventually you have to stop doing research or you're never going to stop. You're never going to start writing your story. And I've read, to date, 28 books on the American Revolution, and they've start, they, they start to become repetitive. And I realize I've reached the point of saturation where I'm going to have to cut this down to make a story that will make sense. It will be a sequel to Glasby's Fortune, which is about Harry Glasby and his experience with pirates. But now it's going to be Harry Glasby and his new, and his new life as an old man and his family and their role in the American Revolution. Because people said, well, Jay, are you going to write another book? Yeah, I'd love to write another book. Is it going to be about pirates? You know, I, li I liked Glasby's Fortune. I've, I just recently re read it again myself to motivate me to start writing the sequel so that I would get everything correct, that there wouldn't be any something I'd miss, and just to kind of whet my appetite again. Um, I just I don't want to write about pirates, but I do want to keep writing. But one of the fun things about doing research is learning these odd quirks and learning about how this great nation of ours was formed and, and all the things that had to happen and when they happened and how they happened. Um, this goes back to Glasby's talk about sometimes it's the choices of others that affect us the most. Um, it's not the choices we make. We obviously have the ability to make choices, but the choices of others often has the greatest impact on our lives. So we owe this great country to people like Sam Adams, John Adams, John Hancock, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Monroe. There's a long, long list. Some, some, some will be people that no one's ever heard of. And I'll give you a very quick example. When Glasby goes back to his real life, he has to change his name. And he changes his name to Prescott. That's why the second book is going to be called Prescott's Fortune because he's no longer Glasby. Well, you have heard of Paul Revere. You may have heard of William Dawes, but the only rider that made it to warn Concord that the British were coming was a guy named Dr. Samuel Prescott. That's a real guy. You've never heard of him. Now in my book, he's gonna be Harry Prescott's grandson. That's the historical fiction but there really was a Samuel Prescott. So Glasby's living in Marblehead, which was the second largest city in Massachusetts at the time. It's all these seafaring people, hard-edged soldiers. Guess who, guess who the people were that rode George Washington across the Delaware to defeat the Hessians in 1776? The guys from Marblehead. <laughs> the seafaring men, the hard seafaring men from Marblehead are the ones that got George Washington it wasn't just snowing. It was sleeting and raining, and there were huge chunks of ice in the river. Now, forget the painting. George Washington wasn't in a rowboat standing at the, <laughs> in the front of the boat looking heroic. These were like barges. But they went across the river in the dead of night, and they scored a huge coup. It's one of the things that kept the revolution alive. 
because they were getting their butts beat. But they snuck up on the Hessians, and uh, they, they either killed or took prisoner a 1,000 Hessians. And they let the, the British and the Hessians know that the American army was for real. So it was more of a psychological coup crossing the Delaware, and that was on Christmas Day of 1776. Well, one of the cool things about the time we live in is the amount of information we have available. And I think as we move into the future, we're going to, the ability to organize, catalog, and utilize that information effectively is going to be the, the business barons of the next century. You know, my job used to be about informing people about foam insulation and informing people about different framing techniques and all that. Now I have people bringing three ring binders full of information into my office. One of the things I have to tell all of my customers is, hey, give me your top three. Give me your top three things. Make me a list of what you got to have, what you need to have, and what it would be nice to have. Make me those three lists because you've got to make people organize that information. And then like you're talking about with the research, the point of saturation, I have a saying, sometime you got to shoot the engineer and build the house. And that's really, sometimes you're going to have to shoot the engineer and write the book. It's really interesting how hard that is in this society to filter through the amount of information we have available. And I wonder if that's a, a personality thing or if that's a cultural thing or, or what it is, because that's, that's one of those things that I, I am so guilty of, is I will research and research and research. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's uh, you know a, a training plan or something that I'm just interested in or if it's a book. Uh, you know, I, I will... I will get so enamored with the, um, I really want to build a computer right now, for example. Um, I want to start working on learning some coding, and there's a thing out there called Raspberry Pi. It's a little computer about the size of an Altoids can. Um, and, and I've spent, you know, hours of the last week just researching and learning and stuff like that, but I haven't bought the dang, that dang thing yet. And it's like, so I wonder how much of that is a personality thing, how much is a culture thing, and how much of it is just the, the fact that there is so much information out there that, it, that makes it easy to get lost and just go down rabbit holes. Well, Trey, you and ben, Benjamin Franklin would get along really well. Benjamin Franklin was the most famous American during his time. He spent a significant amount of time living in Britain and living in France. He was kind of a man of the world. But when he was an old man and he came back from Europe, he was measuring the temperature of the water like a scientist because he was very curious. There was a common, he didn't, if somebody thinks that Benjamin Franklin invented electricity, they probably shouldn't be listening to this. But he really did study electricity in ways that made, that kind of opened the door to the use of electric power. I mean, he was on the very, very front end. But his, he wasn't just dabbling in it. He, was, he had a very scientific mind, and he would record all these things in his journal. So one of the things they were studying was the, the way that water flows because everything had to travel by sea. But one of the things I learned early on in this project was part of the disconnect was something would happen in America. It would take three months for that news to get to the king, King George, and Parliament, they would come up with a way to combat it, and it would take three months 
to send the word back, okay, this is what we're going to do. The revolution lasted eight years. Uh, it was a long process. There were long, long, long periods of time where nothing happened. But the pace of everything was much slower. Now, when you were talking about, Shane, when you were talking about information and its accessibility, and Trey, you're talking about you, you could, in, in theory and maybe even in practice, teach yourself how to, how to cobble together a small computer. I mean, you couldn't do that on your own in a log cabin, but you can do that now because you have access to all the information that, that exists through the internet. George Washington was cognizant at some point that he was going to be known long after his death. One of the things that the Americans lacked was funds. They didn't have any money. They, they, there's a long list of things they didn't have. Money was, you can't fight wars now or then without money. But George Washington got the Continental Congress to pay for uh, a cadre of men to copy all of his correspondence as it occurred. There are volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes and more volumes of George Washington's official correspondence. You can access everything that he ever wrote. Orders, requisitions, complaints, officers complaining about promotion, people wanting to get on leave, this business about being inoculated from smallpox, issues large and small, it's all accessible on the internet. You don't have to leave the comfort of your phone or your laptop to read everything that George Washington ever wrote. Back in the day, when I was a young man, you'd have to go to a library or go to the Library of Congress or go to some historical society to access this. But the funny thing that I see is, is that we do have access to all this information, but there's so many things that people don't know about. There's things that I didn't know about with regard to the revolution. Yeah, that information's out there, but it doesn't just it doesn't just kind of walk its way into your head someday when you're 16 in high school or when you're 20 years old in college or when you're a 60-year-old man reading, reading about the things that happened 250 years ago. So, um, yes, eventually I have to stop Googling this guy and Googling this war and Googling that guy and start writing the story or it will never get done. So I'm, I'm curious then, you know, how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. So I'm, I'm curious what, your, what your, first, your first interaction with Samuel Prescott was that, that made you start going down this path. What was it that made this the next story that you wanted to tell? When I wrote the short story, without having any idea that it was going to lead to a book, I somehow discovered this business about Samuel Prescott. I don't know... And I threw that in as a tagline at the end of my short story, and then I took it out of the book. Um, so that was, it was in the back of my brain housing group all along. But as I started reading and learning more about America in the 1700s, leading up to the revolution and during the revolution, I realized that all these things, as, and it doesn't come as a great shock, all these things are linked and all these things are connected. You know, for Glasby to have to survive the revolution, he's going to have to be a really old man. But I've learned that there were really a lot of old men back then. They didn't, if you could survive childbirth and, and early diseases, um, Benjamin Franklin was born in 1706. Harry Glasby was born in 1699. 
they were contemporaries. Uh, they were both old men when the revolution began and when the revolution ended. Uh, George Washington died in 1799, just before 1800. Uh, but he suffered from some health issues, and uh, but he was, for all of his life, he was. Uh, I didn't realize how what a physical guy he was. Um, he was a very, very, very avid horseman. Apparently, had really thick legs, and he was very broad in the back. And when he was younger, you know, we think of him as the picture on the dollar bill, and he looks real stern and kind of like an old man. But that's not the George Washington that existed during the Revolution. He was in his 40s during the war, and he led from the front. He was in the thick of the fighting on many occasions. He was a very fearless leader, and he knew he had to be to lead his troops. He was a very heroic man, but he was also a very physical person. He was a great outdoorsman. He loved hunting and riding around. But I want to mention this about him real quick, because otherwise I'll forget. America has this long... Um, relationship with the horrors of slavery, which I talk about in my first book. That, that's, no, that's, that's multiplied many times during the Revolution. George Washington wrote about this a lot. How can we fight for freedom when we have all these people, when I have all these people that I own? Well, Thomas Jefferson, Monroe, James Madison, they were all slaveholders. And there is a big disconnect between fighting for freedom and liberty that we're all created equal. We're still wrestling with this in the country, and that's something I want to address in the book. They realize that. This is not news to them. They knew that there was a dichotomy there. George Washington was the only founding father who, upon his death, freed his slaves. He was the only one. So he actually, you know, we could criticize him for not doing it sooner, but that was the custom. And he had, he had a lot of land. He was a plantation owner. That was the custom. What he worried about is what's going to happen to these people when we free them. The other thing I'll say in his defense was he would never sell a slave if it would break up a family. He didn't want to... He, it was his personal ethos never to sell a slave. Their marriages weren't recognized. They were treated like cattle. But he wouldn't break up a couple. There's a guy named Billy Lee. You've never heard of him. He was at George Washington's back from the beginning to the end of the revolution. He was his manservant, but he was a slave. George Washington took a guy that he owned. Benjamin Franklin owned slaves, but Benjamin Franklin was a little bit ahead of his time. He was in the first anti-slavery society formed in Philadelphia around 1775 or 1776. So America was wrestling with this problem then, and it's wrestling with these race problems now. But they talked about secession and civil war in 1790. It didn't just happen in 1850 and 1860. It was percolating even then. But to put a, to put a cap on this, the only way that they could bind the 13 colonies together was to turn a blind eye to the evil of slavery. It's the only way they could do it. It was a compromise. It was a deal with the devil. There's a paragraph in the original Declaration of Independence that condemns the slave trade, they took it out. Thomas Jefferson was really mad because he was very idealistic. And it's one of the great documents you know, in history, not just American history. But learning about this is very eye-opening because they, they weren't blind to this. They recognized that it was a problem and there was gonna become a day of reckoning and it happened between 1861 and 1865. Well, and this is something I love about discussing history with someone who understands history. I came 
I came to Jay one night. We were sitting here discussing things. And I had a real problem in my life of a friend who had done some things that were very unethical, that were very disturbing. And I was very disturbed at how to handle this situation. And you relayed a story from me to me from George Washington's life that picture that made the perfect example of how to handle this situation. Can you relay that story? You know which one I'm talking about? Well, there was, um, there was a lot of envy and jealousy among the general officer ranks, and there was a cabal to try to unseat George Washington. And George Washington was aware of it, but he, he knew if he got down into it and, and, and messed with it, he would get, he would get, he would get dirty. He was very, very patient, and he knew that if he just let it go, it would take care of itself. So he didn't involve himself in it, and it did, it did take care of itself. Other, other people intervened, but there were people that were trying to get him unseated as the commanding general because they, they thought he was inept. He lost, he lost every battle there for a while. That's why the thing at Valley Forge, or not Valley Forge, but the crossing of the Delaware was so important. He wasn't a great battlefield commander but he was great in so many other ways. And one of the things was he would let things percolate and let them take care of themselves rather than try to stir the pot. Um, he just was, uh, he was very, very thoughtful. He also, uh, it's kind of sad to think about all these other guys, the founding fathers were unusual because they were aristocrats. Usually the revolution comes from, you know, the unwashed masses. South America, Central America, Mexico, the French Revolution, you know, it's the peasants at the pitchforks. These were aristocrats. These were rich people. Uh, John Hancock was one of the richest merchants in Boston. Thomas Jefferson was very wealthy. George Washington was always struggling to make ends meet because he was always going off to war. He couldn't take care of his plantation and make a profit. Um, but he didn't have a classical education. And he was always self-conscious about that. But he had this innate sense of what mattered and what didn't. Plus, he was very, very honest. He really, he, he told a lie or two now and then. He was a human being and he was a politician. <laughs> but he was, his reputation was, he was idolized. When he would go through a city, people would flock to the street and it was like they would lay down the palm leaves and him riding his donkey through the town. One of the strangest things I read was that when he was inaugurated as president, he rode a big white charger stallion. The, the horse's name was Prescott. <laughs> that, you'll see that again. <laughs> well, it's, to me, that's where the rubber meets the road on your people that know history and your people that use history. When you can bring something from history into life and it helps you handle a real situation, that's the link. And I think that's one of the benefits of historical fiction is it does open the door for more of that sort of thing happening, which is just really exciting to me because, like I said, the advice you gave me, and it was Washington, one of the people that were conspiring against him, he intercepted a note. You can tell the story much better than I can. I'd forgotten that detail. It's, it's uh, in, in today's world, it would be as if you were going through your emails and somebody at work sent you an email by accident and they're, they're dogging you behind your back. George Washington got a letter uh, that was involved in this conspiracy and he didn't know it. He didn't know what it was. So like always, he opened the letter and started reading it and realized that these guys were trying to undermine him. 
and it was somebody that was uh, from Pennsylvania that he had thought up to that point was one of his loyal lieutenants. Didn't realize that this conspiracy was going on. But rather than fire an email back saying, what the hell do you think you're doing? I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get even with you. He calmly folded the letter and just and sent it back. He just sent it back to the guy. The guy knew that he'd read it, and that's all he needed to do. It's like, I know what you're doing, and you're gonna have to suffer for it. And the guy felt like he was about a quarter of an inch tall because he realized at that moment that he'd done a bad thing, and George Washington handled it perfectly by just sending, please tell, please tell this gentleman that uh, I read the letter and sent it back to him. That's all he had to say. And it was very, very, it was very clever. But he rose above the fray. And that's why he was the perfect first president. Because you had everybody, uh, another, they, they argued in, in the very first Congress after the war ended, they are, politicians were no different back then than they are now. They argued and argued and argued about what to call him. And they just decided to call him Mr. President. But they couldn't figure out what to call him because it was all new. When you think about it, it makes sense. Everything they did was new. The Department of the Treasury had 39 employees. Alexander Hamilton. The Department of Defense had four. When George Washington was appointed the Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, he was the only guy in it. <laughs> Literally. He was the only man in the Continental Army in 1775. All the other soldiers were militiamen from different states. And they were Americans, and just like Americans today, they were very independent. They said, hey, my time's up, and they'd go back to their farms, they'd go back to their shops, they'd go back to their printing presses. And George Washington was, it was like herding cats. He was trying, he was trying to carry an armload of jello everywhere he went. And he, that, was, that was what he did that was so heroic. He managed to keep that army together with all these problems that he had, including some of the people that he thought were loyal to him trying to stab him in the back. But he rose above it, and when he became president, he was so idolized, people didn't want to offend him. So he could, he could stop a lot of controversy simply by showing up and just standing there. But it's fascinating to read about, and it, it, it does, it helps, it, it helps in my mind explain in many ways why things are the way that they are and that there isn't really anything new under the sun. We've all, we've all been down this road before, and that's why I think history is really, really important. So, stepping away from history for a minute, we gotta talk about today and all, because last time we had JM, we didn't get to the cigar under eight, and I'm excited about the cigar under eight dollars this week. I know Trey's going to be excited about this. I had a chance to smoke this cigar this weekend that's our cigar under eight dollars, Ran into it, Casa de Monte Cristo. They didn't have it here. And it was the first one of these I had. I didn't think I would enjoy it, but I did. It's the Headley Grange Black Dog. It's a Crown Heads release. It's a Connecticut Habano wrapper. It's a Nicaraguan binder, Nicaraguan filler. The country of origin is the Dominican Republic. But it's the Headley Grange Black Dog. They're $8, maybe get up to $8.50. I'm kind of pushing the envelope lately on cigar under eight. <laughs> But this was a wonderful cigar. It had a real rich, earthy taste. If you ever smoked the original Headley Grange, it was not one of my favorite cigars. Nor was it one of mine. But this fixes that cigar. This is a lot darker, a lot richer, a lot better. Next time you're in your humidor, look around. They've just come out and see if you can find the Headley Grange Black Dog. 
All right. I'm going to have to give that a shot. I'm going to have to find that now. It's, it's a super good cigar, super interesting. It's one of those hidden gems that's just so much fun to find. So that will be our cigar under $8 this week. Well, Jay, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show this week. Uh, as always, uh, or, or it, it has flown by. And we certainly enjoy you stopping by and, and talking with us quite a bit. You're always a wealth of information and a, and a tremendous storyteller. Um, do want to let everybody know that we'd love to hear your feedback on this show and ideas for uh, future shows. Drop us a line, info at thecigarcast.com, facebook.com slash thecigarcast, and you can get us on Instagram and Twitter at thecigarcast as well. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Jay, thank you for being our guest tonight, and we'll talk to you next week.